Stephen Estruce. Congratulations, you've made it. Hi, David Reinstein. I'm going to continue reading the intervention report, Charter Cities, by David Bernard and Jason Shoecroft of Rethink Priorities, published on 12 June 2021 uh, on the Effective Altruism Forum. We pre I previously read and, and made some comments and hopefully helpful explainers on the key takeaways, the executive summary, introduction to charter cities, what is a charter city, related concepts, three ways to think about the value of charter cities as growth engines, as models to emulate, and as laboratories of governance, the history of the charter city movement, advocacy groups for charter cities and related things, background assumptions that motivate the case for charter cities, economic growth is the best way to alleviate poverty, economic growth is mostly a result of good institutions, and direct reforms to institutions at a country level are not tractable, and I think implicitly that charter cities will help achieve these sorts of reforms or progress in institutions. Uh, now I'm gonna continue with hopefully the second half of the report, starting with charter cities path to impact. Sorry, that's charter cities path to impact, singular. For charter city advocacy to be successful, it must increase the probability that a new city will be built with significantly different, hopefully better, governance than the host nation. Below, we outline this path to impact. Advocacy makes a counterfactual impact counterfactual, by the way, we're talking about an impact relative to if they had not done it. So thinking about the world in which they did not do advocacy versus the world in which they did do advocacy. And, and I believe that's really the only kind of impact that makes any sense. Charter city advocacy can succeed in two non-exclusive ways, increasing interest and improving implementation because charter city advocacy can take so many different forms, it is difficult to put a price tag on advocacy in general. It is also difficult to estimate the probability that different forms of advocacy will succeed. Increasing interest. Charter cities require the cooperation of many stakeholders in order to be established. Most obviously, a charter city requires a host nation willing to cede substantial authority to the city. Charter city advocacy can succeed by identifying governments willing to cede such authority or by helping convince governments to cede such authority. Charter cities also require investors and developers to finance the construction of a new city. Charter city advocacy can succeed by identifying such investors and developers and connecting them with the relevant governments. Where such investors and developers do not already exist, Charter city advocacy can succeed by helping to convince investors and developers to partner with relevant governments. Finally, charter city advocates often point to the benefit of partnering with a credible non-international non-governmental organization or, inter or intergovernmental organization such as UN Habitat. The NGO or IGO can serve as a third party auditor and mediator among the host nation, charter city and private developers. Charter city advocacy can succeed by identifying the relevant NGOs or IGOs and connecting them to relevant projects or again, 
by generating interest among NGOs and IGOs. Um, aside here, I guess they're saying the advocacy can get people more interested in it, can convince them with marketing, maybe can do the public good of, of providing and sharing some of this important information. Um, not sure exactly how the advocacy works, but um, it, it seems to make some sense to me. Improving implementation. This is the second way that, that advocacy, they, they argue, can uh, be effective or helpful in promoting charter cities or, or effective things related to charter cities. Improving implementation. In addition to promoting the ideas of charter cities, advocates can achieve counterfactual impact by facilitating coordination, sorry, by facilitating cooperation and providing technical assistance that improves the odds that a charter city once established will succeed. Charter city advocates might influence the selection of a charter city site, advising on both the location and the initial size of the site. Charter city advocates might also influence the rules that govern the charter cities. This influence might affect original legislation that grants the city its autonomy and or the laws that are first adopted in the city. CCI has developed a template link upon which countries could model the legislation authorizing charter cities, as well as an example city charter itself also linked. We did not have the time to examine these documents in detail. Okay, getting back to why do we think that uh, advocacy might work either to help, why, one, why might one think that an advocate, someone putting in outside funds, someone um, doing some form of lobbying or, or sharing information might actually have an influence on either the adoption or the implementation of charter cities. Uh, in other words, sounds like they have a model in mind where uh, people may have a private interest or a social interest in starting these charter cities, countries, companies, NGOs, but they haven't done so or they wouldn't do so, or if they were to do so, it might not be the most effective because they're pursuing their own personal interests. And perhaps the introduction of some funds or pressure from an advocacy group, advocacy group uh, or information, which the advocacy group could put funds into providing and sharing this information, could finance that, perhaps that could have a beneficial effect at the margin or sort of being the, the little bit extra that was needed to make this happen or happen successfully. Um, arguably, the funds used could be influencing policies that maybe the founders don't care that much about. They might have a slight preference for it, but if someone's willing to put in the, the resources or, or to maybe pay directly to finance certain type of implementation, that might sway them in a more beneficial, positive direction uh, in terms of these rules, might also give it more credibility. And uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's the idea behind maybe a small amount of advocacy or funding uh, could have an outsized effect. Again, because it's not a zero-sum game. It's not that shifting the policies in this direction will have, will be that the gains will come at the expense of the people who would otherwise be founding the charter city and, and um, benefiting from it. Path to impact second uh, subsection. A new city is established. For a charter city to succeed, land must be acquired on a suitable site in a willing host country 
This process requires multiple components to come together in the right way. Host nation. First, a suitable host country must be identified. The charter city advocates with whom we spoke focus on establishing charter cities in low or middle income countries with growing urban populations. Such countries are likely to benefit more from a new well-governed fast-growing city than rich countries with stable urban populations. However, if one believes the primary value of charter cities is the information they would generate from experimenting with new rules, there appears to be less reason to focus on developing countries. The host nation must be willing to cede substantial authority to the charter city. Crucially, the desire to cede authority must be relatively stable across administrations. Charter city negotiation and development would be a long process that could span the tenure of multiple officials. One way for a charter city to fail is for the initial enthusiasts in government to leave office before the city is complete and for their replacements to be much less keen on the idea. Rahul Sagar, Sagar, a political scientist at NYU Abu Dhabi, observes political elites, especially those who succeed the original visionaries, could easily lose interest in fostering a competitor whose success starts to undermine support for the rules that benefit them at home. There's a reference. The new pharaoh that did not know Jacob. Paul Romer experienced this failure mode in Madagascar after the coup in 2009. The host nation must also be able to, to cede substantial authority. The constitutional framework of a nation may not be able to accommodate a semi-independent city within its territory. As such, even if the desire to cede authority is stable across administrations, a nation's courts could constrain the administration's ability to cede authority. Paul Romer experienced this failure mode in Honduras in 2012 when the Supreme Court ruled that charter cities were an unconstitutional abrogation of, the Honduran, sov of Honduran sovereignty. Although this, dis though this decision was reversed two months later when the National Congress removed the four justices who had ruled against charter cities. Finally, the host nation must refrain from confiscating charter city assets after the city has been established. And again, this abstention must be stable across administrations. In this regard, charter cities face the same threat as any sort of substantial and immobile foreign investment. In conversation, charter city advocates maintain that the threat of confiscation would be kept acceptably low through current international law, which would, for example, give private developers the right to seize the nation's overseas assets if charter cities' assets are confiscated. One could use mega projects funded by foreign investment, e.g., oil extraction as a way to construct a base rate, base rate probability, uh, background probability, a base to construct a base rate for how often these sorts of major projects succeed. One could use mega projects funded by foreign investment as a way to construct a base rate for how often these sort of major projects succeed, although we note that charter cities would typically require giving up more sovereignty than these projects. In conversation, Jude Moore, former Liberian Minister of Public Works and current senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development, emphasized how difficult it would be to get current leaders to cede substantial authority, at least in Africa. He thinks 
but absent some concrete model to emulate, which, which had spectacular success elsewhere. The only other thing that would get leaders to cede substantial authority would be a major crisis, such as a complete loss of natural resource rent for countries dependent on commodity exports. For example, if Nigeria's oil revenue dried up, or if climate change started having really dramatic effects, for example, those could be some examples of a cr major crisis that would get leaders to cede authority. In conversation, several advocates noted that since building charter cities requires governmental stability, charter cities might have more luck in autocratic regimes because autocrats face fewer constitutional constraints and tend to enjoy longer tenures in power. Hence, founding charter cities could require close cooperation with unsavory dictators. If correct, then the fact then that fact probably raises the risk that support for charter cities becomes a public relations liability. This is, we're still in a new city is established. So first was host nation, then city site. City site. Once a host nation has agreed to cede enough authority to found a charter city, a suitable location must be found for the new city. One of the defining features of a city charter is that it is a genuinely new city. As such, charter cities must be built on greenfield sites, relatively undeveloped and sparsely populated. And because charter cities are meant to be genuine cities, the land area required may be considerable. At a lower bound, CCI suggests a minimum of 10 square kilometers to support a population of 50,000 residents. Mark Luther, personal communication. However, one would probably want to acquire the purchasing rights to an area much larger, potentially over 100 square kilometers for two reasons. One, the thousand acre estimate assumes a population density that may be unrealistically high for a new city. And the city will, and two, the city will require room to grow. Plausibly, one of the most important determinants of a city's economic potential is its access to trade. Charter cities are meant to feature world-class business environments that attract multinational firms, but firms that rely on access to the global market for purchasing raw materials and selling finished goods will be likely, will be less likely to set up shop in a charter city that doesn't have the infrastructure and geography conducive to international trade. It's no coincidence that many of the most successful cities that advocates hope to emulate, Hong Kong, Singapore, Shenzhen, Singapore, Shenzhen, are all situated on the coast. And we know that poor locations sometimes constrain special economic zones. A 2019 United Nations Conference on Trade and Development report on SEZs identified poor locations as one of the main reasons SEZs underperform. Quote, the success of individual SEZs depends on getting the basics right. Most failures can be traced back to problems such as poor site locations that require heavy capital expenditures or that are far away from infrastructure hubs or cities with sufficient pools of labor. That's from UNCTAD 2019, close quote. Given the somewhat unique requirements for a charter city, it's natural to wonder how many suitable sites exist in a 2019 conversation with Tyler Cohen, linked on medium.com, urban planner Albert Alain Bertaud, Bertaud, Bertaud 
said, cities need a good location. This is a debate I had with Paul Romer when he was interested in charter cities. He had decided that he could no longer create 50 charter cities around the world. And my reaction, maybe I'm wrong, but my reaction is that there are not 50 very good locations for cities around the world. There are not many left. Maybe with belt and road, maybe the opening of Central Asia, maybe the opening of the ocean route, ocean route on the northern following the pole will create the potential for new cities. But cities like Singapore, Malacca, Mumbai are there for a good reason. And I don't think there's that many very good locations. End quote. The standard response from charter city advocates is to note that only 3 to 4% of the Earth's land surface is currently urbanized and that brand new cities are being built all the time, a link to a Forbes article. To know which side of this debate to trust, it would help to get a better sense of the percentage of the Earth's surface area that is suitable for charter city development, but we haven't had time to do this. Next, um, a new, next in a new city is established is the section, sub-subsection, private investors and developers. The recipe, that you might think, see this as a recipe. In conversation, several experts emphasize the importance of finding the right private partners for charter city development. Once again, a unique combination of traits is needed. Although the private investors and developers will expect to turn a profit on the project, these partners should also be aligned with the broad altruistic goals of charter city development. I'm wondering if that's what the experts uh, emphasized. I suppose so. Value alignment is important because the development of a charter city will be a long and complicated process involving negotiation among many stakeholders. This negotiation must occur in good faith without the threat that private interests will exploit inevitable loopholes to maximize their returns. Environmental, social, and governance, parentheses, ESG investors, appear to be natural targets for charter city development. Though it remains to be seen if charter city critics pushing the neo-colonialist critique will dissuade ESG investors from becoming involved. In addition to value alignment, the group of private investors and developers ought to have deep pockets. Building an entirely new city is, of course, an expensive enterprise in many low-income countries. We'll rely on the private sector to foot a large portion of the bill. Deep-pocketed investors are also preferred because they can operate on a longer time horizon. Most large real estate projects are debt-financed, but as charter city advocates admit, the return on a charter city investment will typically pay off over a longer period of time than a typical real estate investment, citing Luter 2020. This uh, has a, a post which we've said we've cited before. The fact on his own page. The fa this fact, which fact, uh, the long-term returns, this fact points to a third desirable characteristic for investors appetite for risk. As the early failures in Madagascar and Honduras suggest, charter cities may be a risky venture. Even if the initial stages of charter city development go well, 
private investors will be expected to finance large-scale infrastructure projects with a break-even point potentially measured in decades rather than years because charter city development in even its most basic form is novel and untested investors may be less likely to compound their risk by investing in projects that plan to experiment with new rules private sector risk aversion thus probably limits the laboratories of governance model for charter city value at least in the early decades of charter city development i don't know why i laughed there when we spoke to scott fauci a partner at catalyst cities llc he emphasized the criticality of establishing a charter city's quote enabling environment the set of laws and regulations which allow a charter city to attract and protect the rights of investors and residents over the long term, the enabling environment. His position was that this foundation is more important than a detailed, than a detailed development or master plan, which will necessarily evolve organically over time. Okay, so that's a new city is established, host nation city site, private investors and developers. Next, in the path to impact, after advocacy makes a counterfactual impact, a new city is established and new is new rules are, are implemented. New rules are implemented. According to advocates, charter cities will outperform their host nations because the laws that govern them will be different and better. There are two components necessary to achieve this goal. Identifying a suitable set of rules and implementing those rules. identifying suitable rules. Charter city advocates point to the success of cities like Shenzhen as evidence that better institutions can deliver fast-paced economic growth. In 1980, the Chinese government designated the Shenzhen area a special economic zone, thereby devolving significant administration and policy-making authority to provincial officials with a mandate for economic liberalization. At the time, annual per capita income in the area averaged around $122 by 2008, that figure had jumped 100-fold to over 100-fold to 13,196. That's the World Bank citation. Certainly, if the growth that Shenzhen has achieved over the last four decades could be reliably replicated in charter cities around the world, that would make charter city advocacy an attractive philanthropic intervention. On the other hand, if Shenzhen is an extreme outlier, an extreme outlier, then the attention it receives in the charter city movement may be misplaced, except as an example of one side of a heavy-tailed distribution, uh, a statistical distribution with kind of a lot of outliers. Hence, it's helpful to look at a more representative sample of special economic zones. Fortunately, a 2017 World Bank report, Special Economic Zones and Operational Review of Their Impacts, uh, posted and linked, does just this. The study constructs a data set of special economic zones, their features, and nightlights data as a measure of economic activity. I assume by nightlights data they mean you can see at night how many lights there are from the sky, and that's actually seen as a good way of measuring how much economic activity there is. The study analyzes factors that drive special economic zone performance and how special economic zone performance drives growth in nearby areas. The headline result is that rather than, quote, rather than catalyzing economic development in the aggregate, most zones' performance has resembled their national average. World Bank 2017, see graph below. 
we focus on the relative performance measure. We focus on the relative performance measure ratio of SEZ performance to national growth, partly because it seems to be the author's, World Bank author's preferred measure, but mostly because this gives us some idea of what the counterfactual might have been, whereas a focus just on the absolute measures of SEZ growth doesn't inform us about the counterfactual. In addition, the author note, authors note that, quote, zone growth is difficult to sustain over time. Generally, the economic dynamism of the most successful zones happens in their early years and slows over time, leading to the zone's economic performance becoming similar to that of surrounding areas. World Bank, 2017. Furthermore, the authors conclude that the majority of SEZ programs feature the majority of SEZ program features have had little bearing on zone performance. World Bank 2017. They also find that experimentation with alternative measures of the quality of institutions at a national level, such as the ease of doing business rank, also deliver insignificant results. In other words, the business environment seems to have limited sway over the performance of SEZs. World Bank. This suggests that it's not obvious how to design special economic zone policies to optimize for growth, which in turn suggests that it will be difficult to design a charter city to optimize for growth. However, the report does note that the performance of SEZs in emerging economies has been affected first and foremost by the zone's country and region-specific contexts, close quote, which suggests that location may be a good predictor of success, whereas the standard case of charter cities relies on policies and institutions being predictors of success, especially given that the best sites for cities are already occupied. And below we see the graph mentioned, uh, labeled figure 4.2, SEZ Nightlights Performance. Sounds like a really nice theater show. 27, 2007 to 12. And we see two bar graphs, one absolute and the other relative to national growth. We see, if I understand correctly, out of this, what looks to be about 350 SEZs, 33 had, shrink, were sh had shrinking nightlights performance, less lights, 150 stable, and 163 growing. Relative to national growth, 90 grew slower, 191 equal, and 65 faster. Now, I don't know whether, well, there may be these limitations, whether these were selected because they had particularly poor prospects, that could be an argument why this would understate the benefits. I don't know, maybe they discuss it. Let's move on. Notes, SEZ performance is just the growth rate of the SEZ. Stable means total growth from 2007 to 2012 was between negative and positive 5%, while shrinking is below negative 5% and growing above 5%. SEZ performance relative to national growth is the ratio of SEZ growth to national growth. Equal means the ratio is between 0.9 and 1.1, while slower is below 0.9 and faster above 1.1, explaining, explaining that lovely bar chart. A couple limitations are worth noting. First, this study limits itself to studying zones between half and 10 square kilometers. By way of comparison, the Shenzhen zone was about 300 square kilometers. Larger zones probably resemble charter cities more than smaller zones. Remember, we're looking at special economic zones here, not charter cities, because there aren't charter cities. Larger zones probably resemble charter cities more than smaller zones, and CCR argues that a charter city requires a minimum of 10 square kilometers, and preferably 100 square kilometers. 
course, most of these were less than 10 square kilometers, they say. Within the 0.5 to 10 square kilometer range, the authors find that larger zones pretend to perform better than smaller zones. This fact suggests that the report is more favorable to charter cities than it initially seems. The second limitation is the authors don't actually show the full distribution of SEZ relative performance, so we don't know how fat the right tail is. So the, the successes could be huge successes. Probably one could dig that data up. They show that 65 out of 346 SEZs outperform the national average, and they provide a couple summary statistics. The median SEZ to national ratio is 0.95. The median SEZ grows slower than the national average, and the standard deviation of performance is 0.22. That seems a rather wide error bound, 22, basically 22 percentage points. Standard error, if we have normal distributions, is about plus or is about 66% of the overall mass of the distribution. We can make some limited inferences about the absolute performance distribution, i.e. GDP growth, since the authors have scatter plots of the absolute performance measured. See figure 4.4 below. The distribution is not symmetrical around the median, with the SECs with the highest absolute growth rates, 150% over six years, an annual growth rate of 17.2%, being three times higher than the absolute value of those with the worst growth rates, negative 30% over six years, an annual growth rate of negative 5.8%. So they're suggesting perhaps that the gains are bigger than the losses. But we don't know what this implies for the relative performance measure, since we don't know whether those at the top of the distribution are there because they are in countries with high national growth rates, which would mean that their relative performance isn't as impressive. Okay, it sounds like we need to dig in, one needs to dig into the data a bit more. And we see the scatter plots with trend lines, figure 4.4. .4. Uh, I see years in operation in 2007 size in acres or whatever HA is, distance to largest city, uh, see s general increase with in size, general decrease in years in operation, although I don't see sort of error bounds there, and general, in general increase with distance to largest city, uh, and yeah, a lot of dots in a scatter plot. How can one describe? Uh, okay. The third limitation of these studies is that the economic econometric analysis is not great. Nightlight's measures are a noisy proxy for growth, so their precision is hampered. They don't exploit any random variation in SEZ location. Instead, using a selection on observables approach to identification, basically assuming that differences uh, between the charter cities and the non-charter cities can be completely explained or on average can be completely explained by the things that can be observed about those cities uh, rather than, uh, yeah, rather than allowing that, that there might be random factors that make one, that, that systematically favor one or the other. Selection on observables approach to identification. Our first thought was that this would likely lead to an overestimate of the size of SEZs on growth due to a positive selection story 
whereby SEZs are placed in locations which we would expect to do well anyways, perhaps as a way for politicians or bureaucrats to claim credit for the growth in that area. But a negative selection story, whereby SEZs are placed in an attempt to improve performance in a struggling region, thereby leading to underestimates, also seems plausible. When looking at the drivers of SEZ performance, they, again still the World Bank, consider a set of features related to characteristics of the zone, operator, infrastructure, and location, and regulations in the zone, fiscal, and non-fiscal incentives and investment requirements. They choose which features to include in the model. They choose which features to include in the model on the basis of whether they were significant in univariate analyses, <coughs> oh, which is generally a bad idea. Uh, depending on what you want to do, if you're just trying to predict, that isn't necessarily the worst thing to do, but in terms of explaining, that seems like a pretty bad thing to do. They have no, and they cite, by the way, the econometric or statistical point here, they cite Sim and Kay, Heinz and Junker, 2006. They, World Bank, have no exogenous variation in the zone features, so causal identification is limited. In other words, the zone features might vary in conjunction with other features that they don't observe, so it's not clear that where we see a relationship to those features that that is driving the outcome. They cluster their standard errors at the regional level, i.e. sub-national is a bit of a statistical fine point, but they cluster their standard errors at the regional level, i.e. sub-national, but since SEZ features are correlated within a country, they ought to cluster at the country level. This would likely further reduce the significance of their results. I'm not sure which results were significant that they're talking about here. Um, Despite all these concerns, the paper's descriptive results is specifically answering our questions of what the distribution of SEZ performance looks like. There are many papers on case studies of particular high-performing SEZs, but we haven't been able to find anything else that looks quantitatively at performance more generally, which is why we lean more heavily on this paper than we would necessarily like to do. Importantly, charter city advocates often appeal to the purported success of SEZs in making their case. For example, in the case for charter cities within the effective altruism framework, CCI writes, the SEZ model has, been pro has proven that new jurisdictions operating under a well-designed legal framework can successfully promote growth. Charter cities take this model further by focusing on a much broader set of deep reforms while also building a new city that people are going to want to inhabit, and this in 2019, end quote. Taken at face value, the World Bank report appears to undermine this claim. Okay, so this was under identifying suitable rules, although the section was more, it seemed more just discussing the success of or relative lack of success of, of special economic zones. Implementing suitable rules. The identification of growth premium. Introducing rules means little if those rules aren't implemented properly. 
a core part of the case for charter cities is that by building a new city on a greenfield site with a blank slate to adopt new policies, officials can escape the vested interests that, that constrain reform at the national level. This feat is easier said than done. The initial implementing board of a charter city will consist of a mix of representatives appointed by the central government, the private developers, and potentially members of a local community and members of the multiple of a multinational NGO or IGO. These individuals will likely bring their own interests to bear on the rural selection process. Central government representatives may be loath to deviate much from current policies, lest the nation's non-charter city residents come to suspect that their poverty is the product of poor governance. The private developer representatives will be motivated to maximize profits. And while every effort will be made to align their profit motive with the city's public uh, benefit, such alignment is difficult to achieve consistently. Okay, so they're talking about even if the rules are identified, it might be hard to get them to be adopted as the rules. NGO IGO representatives may want to promote environmental or human rights promotions or human rights protections that other representatives oppose. The local community, uh, the local uh, community, supposing that they are given a seat at all, may have entirely different interests. All told, a delicate balance must be struck, and it's unclear in advance how likely it is that such a balance can be struck. Where compromise is politically necessary, it's unclear how far such a compromise will take the city away from its ideal set of rules. Special economic zones, again, offer a cautionary tale. Because charter cities are complicated projects involving many stakeholders and myriad moving parts, it will be important to monitor the city's performance and adjust policies accordingly. But such self-assessment is rare even in comparably simpler, comparatively simpler special economic zones. A 2019 United Nations Conference on Trade and Development report notes. In fact, the performance of many zones remains below expectations. SEZs are neither a precondition nor a guarantee for higher foreign direct investment inflows, inflows or global value chain participation. Where they lift up where they lift economic growth the stimulus tends to be temporary after the build-up period most zones grow at the same rate as the national economy and too many zones operate as enclaves with limited impact beyond their confines only a few zones regularly assess the performance and economic impact of zones doing so is critical because the turnaround of unsuccessful SEZs requires timely diagnosis, especially when there has been a significant level of public investment in zone development. So it sounds like the UN is also pessimistic about this, maybe thinking of similar data as the World Bank. Uh, one thing I wonder if they're going to get to, this, this makes me think of whether special economic zones, a, a, a large critique I've heard is that things like this just draw industry away from other areas. So it's a it's uh, it's a yeah, it's a not a strict overall benefit to the country. All right, cutting back. That's the quote from the UN. A final failure mode is expropriation. This is under implementing suitable rules still. Expropriation. If a charter city is successful, the government may feel compelled to renege on its commitments and reabsorb the city under national rule. 
This scenario seems especially likely if the politically liberal laws of the charter cities allow its residents to agitate for greater freedoms for the rest of the country. The prosperity of the charter cities offers some protection, but as the world has witnessed in Hong Kong, a central government may be willing to sacrifice a bit of prosperity in the pursuit of absolute stability. The Charter Cities Institute has developed a risk mitigation guide offering advice they claim would reduce the dangers of expropriation, but we have not had time to vet the guide. So that was the section, Charter Cities Path to Impact. Next section, Cost Effectiveness. In this section, we describe colon, CCI's cost effectiveness model, our alternate model, and further modeling extensions that could be made in modeling the direct benefits of charter cities. None of these models include any of the potential indirect benefits discussed above, and so potentially miss out on the largest source of value from charter cities. It's important to note that all of these models are simplistic in that they assume charter cities have some growth premium and project this forward to look at different growth paths over time. As such, these models are very fragile, with the key parameters of the charter city growth premium and population being based on limited information. We strongly encourage you not to take these models literally and just treat them as weak signals of what the value or return on investment on charter cities might be. CCI's model. CCI's model, and they give a link to a Google spreadsheet, a Google sheet. CCI's model is set up as follows. Parameter values are in the table below. There's a fixed population size in the charter city and the same size population in, and the same size population in the host country. Does that make sense? Um, the charter city has a population as big as the host country. Okay, and that seems a bit, uh, they say this is just to provide an appropriately sized counterfactual. I, I, don't, I don't understand that. Okay, there's a growth rate of 4% in the host country. Charter cities have a growth premium relative to the host country. The growth premium is delayed for some time. Further discussion of how this is modeled below. CCI is responsible for some percentage of the success of the charter city. CCI incurs some costs. And we have a table, CCI key parameter assumptions. The key parameters as they appear in Mason 2019 and CCI's model, that, that Google Sheet link. Parameter, population, and they have parameters, optimistic, neutral, and pessimistic. Um, and then the parameters are population, I guess population of the city and in their model also the host country. So optimistic is half a million, neutrals 100,000, pessimistic 50,000. Growth premium 2.5, 1.5, and 0.5%. Growth delay 2, 6, and 10 years. Marginal contribution to success, marginal contribution of, I guess, of CCI to the success, yes. 50, 35, and 20%. Project cost 1 million, 2.5 million, and 5 million uh, US dollars. Um, is that they do anything to quantify the uncertainty of these as, as you would do in a sort of, I don't know the term for it, a Bayes, but a Bayesian framework as we see um, in the context of, of applications like uh, causal and uh, 
Uh, what's the other one? Guest, get, guesstimate, guess, guesstimately. I'm forgetting what that one's called. Okay, I'm gonna just take a look at this sheet too. I see, yeah, what they said above. I, okay, neutral, optimistic, pessimistic are different tabs. And then we see these year one calculations. They do some pr discounting of present value. Uh, I don't know, it's log ratio. What's, what is the function of the log here? Um, I guess that works in their calculations, uh, which may be something like exponential growth, charter city, GDP per capita. So for instance, the year one in their formula is 20,000, which seems rather high. I'm surprised they're thinking such rich countries. Uh, oh, tr charter city GDP, 20,000, host country, 13,862, which would put it, I guess, on the threshold of rich to middle income, probably considered a rich country in global terms. And they give calculations of units of present value per $100,000 infinite time horizon, uh, and it somehow comes back to $4,263. Uh, discounting backwards, I, I, don't, I don't know, I have to look into the calculations a bit more. Um, and they compare that with uh, the units in from GiveWell for Deworm the World, Schistom, Somiasis, etc., which come up with comparable units of 6721, 4251. Um, I'm trying to, I, I'd like to understand better what, what, what units that's being in, expressed in. So $100,000 yields 6721 in value. I don't remember how that's, um, how that's formulated. Okay, maybe it's explained further here. Okay, um, under the various scenarios, they calculate GDP per capita, I said, in the charter city and host country each year. They calculate the ratio of charter city GDP per capita to host country GDP per capita and take the log of this. Okay. They then multiply this by 1.44 as this is GiveWell's value assigned, aha, to increasing log consumption by one unit for one person in one year to create value units. Okay, so this is somehow gets at the idea that value of income is proportional, is inversely proportional to the income you started out with. So additional units become less and less valuable, I believe. Um, okay, value units are then discounted at an annual 4.2% discount rate. There's a lot of discussion over what we should discount consumption or utility at, but this is consumption. They then divide the cumulative sum of discounted value units by the project cost and calculate the return per $100,000. They look at cumulative value units over various time horizons in five-year increments from five to 50 years. We focus on the 50-year numbers. We were initially confused by how they modeled the growth delight. In our model, if the charter city re receives funding, it starts achieving the growth premium 
10 years earlier in the CCI, in, uh, that's in our model. In the CCI model, the value produced in year T is discounted by 1.04 to the power of T plus the number of years of growth delay instead of just to the power T. This gives approximately similar values. CCI's cost-effectiveness results, optimistic, 285,000 generated per 100,000, in additional value, I guess. Neutral, 8,000, that's quite a step down there. Pessimistic, 300, sorry, 8188, I'm rounding things. 332, pessimistic, and they compare that to deworm the world's estimate of 6721 in equivalent value generated and $384 for 100,000 donated from Give Directly. Um, okay, I have to look over again because obviously deworm the world's about improving health, but there's costs to improving health. So I have to, and how, how does that get translated into additional consumption or the value of additional consumption generated? I would have to review that. I cannot remember off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there, there's some units of how much governments would be willing to spend to save lives or improve lives, how much people, measures of how much people value greater health. Uh, oh, actually, well, they did say deworm the world, and deworm the world rather than, let's say, um, uh, the bed net initiatives, one of, the, one of their metrics is increasing income, increasing uh, GDP, uh, increasing uh, consumption. Although in the other table, they do give units for other more sort of direct health consequence-related things. Okay. The neutral estimates give a cost-effectiveness similar to deworm the world, but their pessimistic estimates give a cost-effectiveness similar to give directly. Their optimistic assumptions, on the other hand, give a cost-effectiveness estimate roughly 40 times higher than deworm the world. Our model, the model of, of Shoecraft and Reese Bernard, we have two models. The first one, and this is in case spreadsheet, is a simple adaptation of the CCI model where one, we model the intervention as causing the growth premium to kick in 10 years earlier. So the advocacy causes the growth premium to kick in 10 years earlier, I guess, rather than doing additional discounting. Two, we calculate the returns on investment uh, using, re we calculate returns on investment by valuing the doubling of income at any level at $60,000. Let's look at the footnote there. This is how Open Phil sometimes valued a doubling of income. It's obviously, there's something a little bit strange about that because lower levels of income, are they talking permanent income or one-time $60,000. Obviously, it should be cheaper than actually paying the money. You know, obviously, 60, if one paid $60,000, one could double anyone's income who was earning less than $60,000 and more than double someone's income who was earning much less than that. But maybe this is a steady state thing. Okay. Returns on investment using valuing the double of income at any level is $60,000. And three, we otherwise use CCI's 
pessimistic parameter estimates. Why? If we don't discount future income gains, then this suggests that the return on investment in charter cities, if we don't discount future income gains, then this suggests that the return on income, return on investment on charter cities is 262 times. While if we do discount them at the 4.2 rate used in the original model, CCI's model, the return on investment is 97 times. We include this just to help understand how the CCI calculations convert to our preferred return on investment units. For reference, GiveWell charities typically have a thousand times return in this framework, where a disease-adjusted life year avert a disease-adjusted life year averted is valued at $50,000. I'm not sure they meant averted there. Um, saved. So this is the bar we would want charter cities to clear. The 1,000 times return bar. Our second model, also linked and using with cost, well, we're about to say that, is our preferred model. We implement this in causal.app to allow us to use distributions rather than point estimates. Uh, you can see our core assumptions graphed at the top of the page and their implications for incomes and return on investment over different time horizons at the bottom of the page. If you wish to input your own assumptions, you can either edit the inputs as they appear on the screen or press use this template at top, which will allow you to make structural modifications to the model as well. Now let's take a look at that. The mycausal.app, clicking on the link. Okay, I see the graphs with distributions. Initial charter cities growth premium and they, you see a sort of hump-shaped bell curve with a right, longer right tail, fatter right tail, average of 0.002, pretty close to zero, range negative 0.009 to negative 0.07, probability, okay, then as I scan my finger or my, my mouse along this graph, I can see uh, it gives me the one minus the cumulative distribution, I believe. So it gives me the probability of it being above a certain amount. So they put a 43% uh, or so. I can't, I can't quite get to zero. Something like a 50%, slightly more than 50% probability of it being positive. What's the probability that they, this is, that they put on it being at least 0.01, which is, I guess, 1% higher growth than um, than uh, relative to the to the country overall, they're putting a seven percent probability of a one percent bonus if if I'm understanding it correctly, a one percent growth premium. Okay, then we look at growth premium over time, and we see that it's they give uncertainty over the growth premium at each point in time. We see a narrowing band though with, I guess, less uncertainty and also slightly... It's hard to see if that's a straight line or not. Um, initial population, 
probability, the population. So they center that at about uh, well about seventy thousand, and yeah, and then let's see what's the probability that they put it being over two hundred thousand is less is about two percent. Population growth rate. They also have this 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 bellish curve. I'm not quite sure where the data comes. It's not a smooth curve, so I'm wondering where that came from. Uh, project cost, that is a smooth curve. Uh, with a center mass at, or smooth bell, with a center mass at about seven or eight million. Uh, but all, almost all of the masts, well, in fact, literally all of the mass below 18 million, it looks like. Population over time. I'm not sure if that's a result of population growth rate. GDP. I think these ones below are results. GDP per capita over time. Uh, potential fast colon slow return on investment over different time horizons. Uh, again, all of these give a median and then this shaded diverging area. And as you go out further, the return on investment is uh, of, of the charter city being sped up by 10 years, they're more uncertain. Okay, potential fast, I, I don't know all these details. Undiscounted, discounted, 50-year uh, return on investment. I guess that's the sort of outcome of most interest. So they say, what is the range? Negative three to nine, to about 10,000 return on, I guess that's $100,000 uh, per $100,000 investment. Uh, average of $97 return on a $100,000 investment, but substantial, let's say, think substantial probabilities of, I don't know, maybe about $100, $400. Once you get higher than that, it goes to very low probabilities in, in their model. But I could adjust this. Let's see, what could I adjust? Um, don't, the problem is I don't understand entirely the model here. So suppose I was to adjust the speed up to say that actually instead of 10 years, it's sped it up by 20 years. Let's see if this adjusts anything here. Hmm, do I need to push a button to implement this? I'm not seeing anything change, to be honest. Oh, wait, wait, wait. The 50-year return on investment seems to double, almost double to $161. Uh, growth rate uh, yeah I don't I guess is the growth rate the growth premium or the background growth rate uh, I don't know um, I will say what if I adjust the growth rate to instead that's got to be the background growth rate right I guess all right well let me we'll play with that in our own time as they say so let me read on here So that, that was their causal act model with extensions. Um, okay, uh, you can see our core assumptions graphed on the top of the page and the implications for incomes and ROI over different time horizons on the bottom. Yeah, we said that. Uh, first, we describe the extensions we make to the model, which makes it more complex, but we think better captures the key concerns when thinking about cost effectiveness of charter cities as a tool for increasing incomes. Note that we still do not include the potential value from indirect benefits outside the city, coming from experimenting, finding good policies, and scaling those up to country as a whole, to the country as a whole. So, which they claimed before was probably the greatest part of the benefit. 
We think the sort of value is particularly hard to formally model, so should have a separate model entirely devoted for, to it. Secondly, we use our own beliefs about the parameters of the model instead of CCI's beliefs. Where possible, we just specify distributions of beliefs rather than point estimates. We are generally more pessimistic than even CCI's set of pessimistic assumptions. Why? Maybe because of World Bank? Uh, the general setup of the model is the same. We estimate a growth path for the charter city with the charter city delayed by 10 years and with no charter city. We focus on the comparison of incomes between the charter city versus the charter city delayed by 10 years. Aha, that's the fast colon slow. But we also include the comparison to no charter city for reference. So did CCI make a charter city happen 10 years earlier? Or did they make a charter city happen that would never happen? That's the difference there. Uh, we calculate how many income doubling equivalents there are for each year and convert this income doubling equivalents there are each year and convert this into an annual return on investment valuing an income doubling at $60,000. Hmm. We then discount future values but also show the non-discounted values and take the cumulative sum of these returns on investment over time. This gives us a return on investment over various time frames, with the maximum time frame being 50 years after the charter city is set up, as in the CCI model. Uh, note that all of that will still be added up and discounted back to the present if they're doing the discounting. However, we change some features of the model and some of the parameter values as described below. Okay, maybe now they'll justify it. First, we, instead of having a fixed population, we allow the population to grow over time. We specify a distribution over the initial population and a distribution over the population growth rate and project these forwards to get the population over 50 years. We assume a log normal distribution for the initial population and a normal distribution for the population growth rate with a mean of 2%. Importantly, we implicitly assume that the population growth is independent of the charter city growth premium. In reality, these things are almost certainly positively correlated since people are more likely to migrate to fast-growing cities. Right, so the different uncertainties are assumed to be independent of one another. Uh, I guess that causal would also allow them to be correlated, to have some distribution that's that yeah that involves a certain correlation that's not orthogonal as they say okay so adding a positive correlation to the model would reduce population in bad scenarios and increase it in good scenarios thus increasing the return on equity uh, return on investment of charter cities we keep the same initial gdp per capita five thousand dollars and counterfactual growth rate four percent as in the cci model these parameters don't matter for calculating the return on investment since we look at income doublings relative to this counterfactual growth path. We modify the charter city growth premium in two ways. Firstly, we are more pessimistic about the initial growth premium. We assume it is log normally distributed with a median at zero and a long right tail, VCC growth premium figure below. This therefore allows for the possibility of charter cities being bad for growth, but recognizes that there's potential for them to cause much higher growth rates.
Our median value is lower than CCI's pessimistic assumption for the growth premium, but this reflects our reading of the World Bank's uh, 2017 report described above, which found the median effect of SECs on growth was zero. We take this to be the best empirical evidence on growth rates of a close empirical analog to charter cities, though we still think it is weak evidence. We allowed for charter cities to have worth gross performance, worth gross, worse growth performance than their host countries, since this is shown to be a possibility for SEZs and also seems possible for charter cities too. We recognize that there are arguments that charter cities may have higher growth rates than SEZs in expectation, both due to their different institutional arrangement and the fact that they are planned to be larger and therefore potentially benefit more from agglomeration. Agglomeration being, I guess, the benefits of having productive industries and uh, people with high human capital together. Okay, so they start out with a basically a near zero. Uh, as opposed to C Charter Cities Institute, they start out assuming that initially, at least, the uh, charter cities will have no faster growth than the surrounding regions and countries, although they allow for it to have uh, possibly a negative grow slower even at first or grow faster and even substantially faster. Secondly, we then also assume that this growth premium trends towards zero over time. So if, of course if it started at zero there's, there's nowhere for it to go. We assume an average 2% annual decline in growth premium. Uh, so if the growth premium so 2% of that premium proportionally, not not getting 2% slower growth, of course. So if the growth premium was 1% in year one, it would be 0.98% in year two and 0.961% in year three and so on. We're very uncertain about what value this parameter should take. So we model it as a uniform distribution between one and 3%. The decline, the percentage decline, proportional decline in growth rate uh, premium relative to the host country. This is also based on the World Bank report, which found that older SEZs had lower relative growth rates. We attempted to estimate this parameter from the results of the report, but there wasn't sufficient information to do so. This is a shame about people not putting all their data online or not making their data and code completely transparent and integrated into the reports. This decline has a limited effect when the growth, initial growth premium is close to zero, of course, at the center of our distribution, but its effect is more significant in the tails where initial growth rates are three to five percent. Okay, so yeah, they, they're really putting the average growth rate rather close to zero, so I don't understand how this will lead to a even the possibility of a positive of a substantial positive impact the average growth rate premium they're giving is hope is two tenths of a percent we continue modeling the impact by considering a counterfactual where the charter city and its associated growth premium comes into existence 10 years later if they don't get philanthropic funding we include cci's marginal contribution to success parameter as funding credit for success, but use a uniform distribution between 15 and 35%. We don't discount future value by a generic 4.2% as in the CCI model, and in practice, we use a lower discount rate. 
Instead, we split up future discount, uh, we split up discounting future benefits into two parts. Firstly, we apply an annual 0.25% discount rate to account for existential risk and epistemic uncertainty. Okay, existential risk, the world might be destroyed in any year. Epistemic uncertainty, I'm not sure. That means I'm uncertain about my own knowing. Uh, I'm not quite sure how that translates into a discount. Secondly, we also account for the risk of city failure by discounting future benefits by an average of 1.5 percentage uh, points annually. We specify a uniform distribution between 1 and 2% to account for uncertainty over the annual risk. So it sounds like they're not discounting consumption, but they're doing discounting based on, they're not saying future consumption is less valuable than present consumption, but they are doing discounting based on these risks that the whole thing blows up in some way. Uh, blows up as in is nullified. Uh, we specify a uniform distribution between 1 and 2% to account for uncertainty over the annual risk. This is meant to capture scenarios like the host country expropriating a city after a change in government or private developers pulling out with no one to replace them. This results in an average annual discount rate of 1.75% as opposed to CCI's 4.2%. We are also very uncertain over this parameter. I believe that even the discount rate is given an uncertainty component in their model. We then divide the value. I might be wrong about that. We then divide the value by the project costs to calculate the return on investment. For costs, we also use a log normal distribution shown below, meaning about 8.5 or something, no, about 10. A lot more upside risk to the cost than downside risk. I don't think they allow costs to potentially be negative. Um, that we assume higher costs than CCI do because we think it's plausible that CCI could be in operation for 20 plus years without causing the development of a charter city. A single charter city. This only includes the cost for a nonprofit advocating for the charter city and providing technical assistance in the setup. It does not include the potentially hundreds of million dollars that will be spent by governments and private developers to build and manage the city. The main output of this modeling process is the graph below. Okay, this gives us an estimate for the expected return investment over different time horizons. In the scenario where the charter city is sped up by 10 years and future benefits are discounted as a 1.75% rate due to existential risk, epistemic uncertainty, and the risk of city failure. All right, we've seen this in the, in the um, causal, but again, they're put, putting in this in the forum post, potential fast versus slow, so speeding it up, uh, return investment over different time horizons, parentheses discounted. Return when charter cities is sped up by 10 years and future income gains are discounted by 0.25 due to the risk we just talked about. Um, and 1.5% due to the risk of city failure. 0.25 existential, 1 point plus 1.5 risk of city failure. Areas show 90% uncertainty intervals. We see a widening wedge. Um, and the there's a red line with a somewhat increasing cumulative discount return on investment i guess that's the median of the prediction and then a lighter red or pinkish um 
or pinkish wedge, projecting it out over 50 years. Uh, but in all cases, I believe discounted back to the present. And after 50 years, even the top part of the wedge doesn't seem to achieve the 1,000 times return on investment that they say as their benchmark considering give well charities, considering give well charities. We think there's two main takeaways from this modeling exercise. Firstly, under our assumptions, the direct income benefit of charter cities don't reach the thousand times ROI bar in expectation, even with a time horizon of 50 years, where they reach an expected ROI of 127x. That's the middle point of their prediction. Secondly, even this basic model contains a lot of uncertainty about the potential ROI on charter cities. There's a 5% chance that the ROI is greater than a thousand times. On the other hand, there is also roughly a 50% chance that the returns to charter cities are negative rather than positive. Okay, so it does go up above a thousand times, not up to 1.1 thousand times. But yeah, roughly 50% chance of negative returns. Hmm. We think these estimates should be taken very tentatively given the additional uncertainty outside the model, but they reflect a general our general pessimism of charter cities as a direct intervention to boost incomes. And maybe this is a first step towards modeling. 50-year uh, ROI, they give a, a, a graph pasted in here with a range, I guess, that we've already covered this. Okay. Um, Okay, that was our model. So first they presented CCI's model, now our model, their model, uh, the author's model, and now potential extensions. Extensions one and two, which would increase the return on investment of charter cities come from CCI's write-up. Incorporating the extensions from five onward would likely reduce the return on uh, investment. Extension five itself is from Stephen Clare's Shallow Investigations of Charter Cities for Founders Pledge. Founders Pledge being an another organization that um, is asked, or being an organization that is asking people uh, to um, pledge to contribute if their enterprise business is successful, their startup, and they also do seemingly s quite a bit of research about where people might want to give or what would be the effectiveness. Um, The remaining suggestions are our own. Okay, but extensions. Including spillover effects in the form of growth boosts to nearby areas that trade with the city. Aha, so they're saying that the latter extensions reduce it, but maybe these former extensions can only, I can only imagine they increase it. Number two, increase, including spillover effects from the country adopting similar reforms to those made in the city. Um, number three, including the benefits from novel experimentation, e.g. legalizing reproductive cloning or a good regulatory scheme for prediction markets. So legal experimentation. The first one seems rather controversial. Including non-pecuniary benefits as part of the value, e.g. increased freedom. Number five, uh, this is from Stephen Clare. Model population growth and the charter city premium as positively 
correlated rather than independent to capture the notion that people are more likely to move to cities with higher economic growth. So those are all things that would increase adoption. Number six, increasing the risk of failing to successfully implement the charter city, including a risk of failing to successfully implement the charter city. Number seven, including opportunity costs of governance, governments and private developers in setting up, setting up and managing the charter cities appropriately discounted to allow for the lower effectiveness of their marginal use of money relative to any philanthropist or an effective philanthropist setting this up. Better modeling of the decline in the growth premium over time especially as cities approach the growth frontier and can no longer rely on catch-up growth. That could actually go either way. Um, by the way, growth frontier would be some sort of, I mean, physical or economic or feasible limit to growth for anyone, and catch-up growth would be like, okay, they're below the growth somewhere else, so they can grow pretty fast, but once you've caught up, you can't. Number nine, accounting for a positive correlation between the growth premium uh, and population growth, as more people, uh, people are more likely to move to a fast-growing city. Um, I feel like that is the same as five, but maybe I'm making a mistake here. I'm going to put a hypothesis comment there. Um, is this different from five question mark? Two and three, including spillover from country adopting similar reforms and the benefits from novel experimentation, are arguably the largest additional source of value for charter cities. But unfortunately, they're also the ones that we have the least amount of information on and seem hardest to model. Ultimately, we're not convinced that extending this particular modeling exercise further is valuable. We focused on building a more complex model of the direct income growth benefits of charter cities since this was the focus of Mason's write-up and model, and by the lights of direct benefits, charter cities don't seem exceptionally cost-effective to us. However, it's entirely plausible that the majority of benefits of charter cities come from exploring alternative policy and governance possibilities and scaling up successful ones. This was not the main focus of Mason 2019 and has not been the focus of charter city advocates in conversations we've had with them. We think calculating a ROI from these sorts of benefits is substantially harder and would require a totally separate model. That's okay. We would be keen to see charter city advocates explicitly make for the charter the case for charter cities by these lights and with former modeling, formal modeling rather than anecdotes. A sketch for how one could model the benefits from two spillover effects from countries adopting similar reforms to those made in the cities, from the country adopting similar reforms to those made in the cities. Proposed by Peter Favaloro of Open Phil. Uh, follows. Provided, pr a sketch follows. Proposed by Favaloro of Open Philanthropy. We haven't done this exercise, but we think it would be worthwhile for charter city advocates to do something similar to this, perhaps in a different context, and quantify just how much value they think charter cities might produce along these lines. I'm seeing a lot of interesting uh, academic student or uh, academic research possibilities here as well. Find a high-quality estimate of China's uh, national income gains from the Deng reforms. Estimate what proportion of the reform can be attributed to Shenzhen. Include some concept, concept of expected value, e.g., for example, two out of three times 
China wouldn't have captured all these benefits. Pick a target country that would gain from a, that would gain from a charter city or special economic zone today. Estimate what could be gained in the country by analogy to this simple example in steps one, in step one and two. Adjust for the fact that China was exceptionally far from a market economy before the Deng reforms has a large population, the likelihood of success, and other factors. Number five. This was steps one to four, now five. Produce a statement like, for example, quote, there is a one in A chance the city's growth is roughly as impressive as Shenzhen's. A one in B conditional probability that if the city is impressive, it will inspire nationwide policy changes. And a one in C conditional probability that, given all above, the broader nation will experience a roughly China analogous acceleration in growth. And given the current national income and projected growth in this country, this will produce X amount of expected value. It would likely be worth further breaking down the chain of conditionals and using Monte Carlo simulations. Maybe we would, ref maybe the, uh, by the way, the, the, the maths behind the, the models we saw could be called Monte Carlo simulations. I suppose their simulations are necessary because they don't have analytical calculations. It would be worth further breaking down the chain of conditionals and using marginal Monte Carlo simulations to correctly propagate the uncertainty across steps, as in ca the causal and, and, and other su such simulations. Um, consider those estimate number six, consider those estimated gains to the expected, compare those estimated gains to the expected philanthropic and potentially other costs of founding a charter city. Reading through this, I'm finding myself questioning again, why is a country-specific example so necessary I don't know which way this goes. I mean, the examples could inform other countries, but at the same time, do we need a charter city? To does it to what extent would another charter city, you know, inform the country um, on top of let's say what Shenzhen has informed us? Um, I'm also a little uncertain as to whether we're talking about the benefit of the first charter city in the world or the benefit of additional charter cities. I'm not quite sure what the game plan is in terms of, also in terms of CCI's advocacy, etc. Okay, now we're in the pen ultimate section. Pen ultimate content section, which is uncertainties and open questions. Um, one, how much do charter city advocates need to spend to increase the probability by one percentage points that a charter city will be founded? Alternatively, how much do charter city advocates need to spend to accelerate charter city development by one year? Number two, how many governments are willing to cede enough authority to create a charter city, and how might this change over time? What sort of cascading effect should we expect after the first potential wins? Number three, what percentage of the Earth's land surface is suitable for city development? What percent of this area is both sparsely populated and geographically suited for easy access to international trade? What percent of this area is in low-income countries? Uh, again, this is, feels to be getting back to the model where the charter city's growth itself is what's relevant rather than the spillovers. Number four, how many investors are sufficiently value-aligned, depocketed, and risk-tolerant enough to potentially finance charter cities? How much money do these investors collectively control? Number five, how easily can growth premium-inducing rules be identified for a charter city? What are these rules, and how generalizable are they? Number six, how likely is it that Implementing boards, boards will that implementing boards 
not implementing boards, but the implementing boards, will establish the rules that have been identified as growth premium inducing. How easy is it to align the profit incentives of private actors running the city with the social welfare of the citizens? How likely is it that the policies that prove successful in charter cities will be replicated elsewhere? Number nine, what is the expected value of encouraging charter cities to experiment with novel governance structures rather than adhere to current best practices? How much of this value can be captured in reform zones? How tractable are reform zones relative to charter cities? What risks, if any, does this sort of experimentation increase? So they're sort of saying, what's the contribution of charter cities over or above what we already have in terms of special reform zones or you know, special economic zones or, quote, reform zones? Um, maybe I didn't understand that point. Number 10, how likely is expropriation? Number 11, how politically controversial will the idea of charter cities become over the next decade? Politically controversial. How much? Number 12, how much of the proposition value of charter cities is in non-economic benefits? I guess they mean the freedom-type benefits. I don't think they're talking about the spillovers. How should we value-slash-model these benefits? And finally, number 13, what types of current charter city advocacy, blogs, podcasts, newsletters, conferences, white papers, make the most impact? Those seem like formats. Maybe you could talk about more about, I could talk more about types of advocacy. Uh, how much do these methods differ in cost? What other types of advocacy could be pursued? And now, lo and behold, we are at the final section called Research Ideas. Because there's so much uncertainty surrounding charter cities, further research could unlock valuable information at a modest cost. This could be either in the form of in-depth research or small-scale projects that test the core assumptions behind the charter city movement. Commissioned report on charter cities in Africa. In conversation, Gude Moore suggested commissioning the African Union Development Agency New Partnership for African Development, AUDA-NEPAD, or a similar group to write a report about the potential for charter cities in Africa. AUDA-NEPAD has a reputation for investigating speculative interventions to promote African development, and Gude thinks that the group would be a good fit for this sort of research. We believe that the report could provide stronger and more credible evidence about the current and potential viability and benefits of establishing charter cities in Africa than we are able to offer as non-experts without the necessarily local context. Unfortunately, we do not know how much it would cost to commission such a report. A second research idea, commission model of indirect charter city benefits from CCI. In their own cost-effectiveness modeling, the Charter Cities Institute only accounts for the direct economic benefits that charter cities might provide to their residents. Our view is that these benefits alone are not high enough in expectation to justify expected altruists supporting charter city advocacy, However the, however, the vast majority of charter city benefits may lie in the indirect benefits these cities could generate. To examine whether this claim is true, it would be nice to have a formal model, uh, I think they mean an empirical model, that attempts to roughly capture the value that charter cities might generate through spillovers, replication, and experimentation. Actually, I'm not sure if they mean an empirical model or something else. The Charter, Institute, Charter Cities Institute seems like a natural organization from which to request such a model of indirect charter city benefits. Third research idea, 
improved analysis of special economic zones, the World Bank's special economic zones. The World Bank's 2017 report on special economic zones has played a large role in shaping our views on charter cities. However, as noted above, uh, the report was subject to several limitations. When asked about the report, advocates have leaned on these limitations as a reason to discount the report's findings, while still maintaining that success of certain SECs support the case for charter cities. An improved study of special economic zones would either vindicate charter city advocates by finding that SECs of a predictable stripe reliably improve growth or undercut the general case for charter cities by finding similar results to the original, the, the World Bank studies. Um, getting clear on the features of SEZs that are most analogous to charter cities and constructing a data set of just those SEZs would therefore be valuable. Parentheses. For instance, the World Bank reports limits their analysis to SEZs that are no larger than 10 square kilometers, where some of the most successful SEZs have been much larger. If size matters a lot, then since charter cities would probably be a bit larger than 10 square kilometers, the World Bank results may not generalize to charter cities. Unfortunately, we do not know from whom to commission such a report. And the final research idea. Sustainable development zones in Ethiopia. Okay, let's check, remind ourselves what sustainable development zones are. Sustainable development zones, as opposed to some of the other things like special economic zones, are new urban communities with special and legal administrative institutions that further sustainable development in line with the UN agenda, uh, model, new model for urban governance. They don't involve extensive new construction. They could be done in SEZ camps. There are no SDZs with a bottom-up inclusive approach just yet, but they mentioned even above the, the Ethiopian uh, government. Uh, endorsement and support for this concept, which addresses uncontrolled urbanization and informality, leading to bankability, being able to use banks, micro, small, and medium enterprise development, aha, and creates jobs for the urban poor internally displaced peoples and refugees. Okay, so the SDC Alliance, Sustainable Development Zones in Ethiopia, based on recent negotiations by Killian Kleinschmidt, who has a Wikipedia page, has agreed with the Ethiopian government to implement sustainable development zones in Ethiopia, labeled as SME cities, I assume small to medium enterprise cities. The goal of this project is for a special purpose, social enterprise to rezone the land around several informal settlements housing individuals that have migrated from rural villages to the peri-urban areas or been displaced by recent violent conflicts in Ethiopia. Rezone the land around these settlements. The special purpose vehicle held by the developer, the residents, and the municipality will help ensure adequate infrastructure and social services financed by a blend of finance sources ranging from investors to donors and the state. A feasibility proposal for the project can be found here. I'm going to link what was to be a Google Doc. The next phase of the project, planned as of July 2021, will require approximately 600,000 U.S. dollars to establish a physical presence in Ethiopia and conduct detailed feasibility studies at proposed locations to be agreed with the government. $600,000 would pay for a small Ethiopian team supported by SDZ Alliance experts to refine current feasibility studies and coordinate with government officials and investors and set up 
an initial project implementation unit for six to eight months. The Ethiopian government is supporting the fundraising effort with donors and investors, with donors and investors from by the CSDZ Alliance, which is currently operating on a shoestring budget. The project itself appears promising, but the main value of funding it would be to see if we could use a reform zone to spark the sort of virtuous cycle of economic growth that charter cities might furnish. If the project is successful, that success would provide modest evidence that we do not need brand new cities to generate the benefits charter cities advocates advertise. Although I might say it might sometimes argue that that maybe if this isn't if this brings those benefits, maybe charter cities would also, and where this is impossible, one might want charter cities, so I'm not sure which way that would go. Okay. Acknowledgements section. Uh, thanks a lot of people. Uh, full di- I don't know if it's a full disclosure or if it's uh, tooting my horn, myself included. I am thanked. Uh, Openfill f- provided funding, but does not endorse necessarily endorse its conclusions. References section. A lot of articles, including some in prominent economics journals. Slate Star Codex, blogs, uh, some, yeah, we, we've, we've mentioned some of these, think tanks. Um, these are all been cited in, in, the, in, the, in the, you know, the essay, the report, um, World Bank, United Nations, some epidemiology, uh, Forbes magazine. Footnotes, I think I won't come back to the footnotes right now. Uh, maybe have a look at those if you like. We cannot read everything. Um, but let's move on to the comments section. We have some nice comments here. Uh, they seem to be getting some upvotes and good responses, and it's a manageable section, so let's get into it. The most updated, uh, the most upvoted comment four days ago by Mark Rutter, obviously the guy with the Charter City Institute guy whose report was heavily discussed. He got 55 karma in 23 votes. That's, that's quite a lot of karma. Mike Luter writes, This is a good comprehensive overview. Some comments. Number one, the report starts by saying, Rethink Priorities has been piloting expanding into human-focused near-termist of global priorities research. Charter cities should be viewed as a mid-termist position. The time horizon is longer than malaria nets, deworming, cash grants, etc. The time horizon is closer to AI safety, bioweapons, etc., and should be measured in decades. David Bernard responding to the comments now, to this first comment. On one, I agree that charter cities sit somewhere between near-termist and long-termist. So thinking about them as a mid-medium-termist makes sense. I imagine rethink priority future work in this space will be a mixture of traditionally near-termist and mid-termist topics. However, most of the current arguments for charter cities, especially Mason 2019, have an explicitly near-termist flavor, given the direct comparisons to give all charities and a focus on the direct benefits. I'm keen to see robust medium-slash-long-termist arguments for charter cities being made more explicitly. Mark Luther, Chinese growth, which resulted from special economic zones and urbanization, is the greatest humanitarian miracle in the post-war era. 
lifting 850 million people out of poverty. The Charter Cities Movement is the only group trying to replicate that success. That deserves at least about 1% of EI time and attention, in my humble opinion. Number three, special economic zones are not the right, are not the right comparison. A city is the smallest unit that can sustain economic development. SEZs have four important differences, linking, with charter cities. Size, one size. Most SEZs are geographically small, less than 1,000 acres. Charter cities are cities are cities and require tens of thousands of acres. Reforms, most SEZs have weak reforms, tax breaks, one-stop shop, etc. Charter cities create a new legal environment from the ground up. Industry, most SEZs are single industry, electronics, textile manufacturing, etc. Charter cities are cities with a multitude of industries and supply chain linkages. Fourth, administrative autonomy. Most SEZs have limited administrative autonomy and the rules come from the government. Charter cities have a wide degree of a delegated authority to respond to changing conditions on the ground. <clears throat> with these differences, Shenzhen is closer to a charter city than SEZ. It, Shenzhen is closer to a charter city, city than SEZ. In 1980, it was about 320, greater than 320 square kilometers and had significant devolved authority, quote, except for the Railway Post and Telecommunications Bank and Civilization and National Defense. All other management authority was delegated to the provincial government. A recent edited volume by C. Qi Zheng is a better guide to thinking about charter cities than the SEZ literature. She reviews new cities, urbanization, special economic zones, and industrial parks in China. This is quoting the book. Number one, if we consider large industrial parks as seeds of new so-called consumption cities that develop around them, China has built uh, 1,568 national level and provincial level industrial parks in 270 municipalities since 1998, which account for 10% of China's GDP, China's GDP and 30%, 33% of its foreign direct investment, page 12. This has many parallels to our discussion of industrial parks as anchor tenants for charter cities. Um, that was a recently edited volume is towards urban vibrancy. Admittedly, there are important differences between SECs in China and potential charter cities in Africa. China had more state capacity, had more restrictions on markets, fewer ethnic differences, etc. However, if, even if the success is an order of magnitude lower, that means lifting 85 million people out of poverty. Responsibility or not. On two and three, there's some tension between the claims that one, Chinese growth is a result of SEZs. Two, the charter cities movement is trying to replicate the success of China. And three, SEZs are not the right comparison for charter cities. To simplify the argument somewhat, we are taking the position that the more useful currently existing empirical analog for charter cities, empirical analog for charter cities is all SEZs, whereas your position is that it is Shenzhen. I totally accept your points about the important differences between SEZs and charter cities. However, I am still concerned that focusing solely on the Shenzhen SEZ is cherry picking and an unrepresentative sample of how we might expect charter cities to perform. I think the ideal empirical analog would be the subset of SEZs, of all SEZs that were large, had relatively high autonomy and multiple industries, 
However, we couldn't find any analysis of the performance of this subset. Charter cities are more tractable than people think. A decade ago, Romer got the Madagascar president interested in charter cities and legislation passed in Honduras. The, the legacy of the Honduran legislation is charter towns like Prospera and Ciudad Morazan, too small at the moment to be described as cities. It's possible to imagine an alternative history where Romer got traction earlier. The recent success in Honduras should cause folks to update their priors. Cities are hot. This is why charter cities are more tractable than people think. Cities are hot. According to journalist Wade Shepard, there's over 200 master planned cities being built right now. There's Akron City, Lanceria, Enimba Economic City, and many more. Few, if any, of the cities can be considered charter cities. However, it's possible to imagine the energy and political will for new cities being harnessed for charter cities. The Charter Cities Institute has seen a marked uptick in interest over the last few years, as well as over the last few months. We're working with two governments on charter cities legislation and see a strong pipeline of charter cities projects that should start making public milestones in the next year or two. In short, there are many good reasons for EAs to pay more attention to charter cities. David Bernard's response. On four, I think the report is clear about why we are currently skeptical of the tractability of charter cities despite recent history. Although I recognize that you have inside knowledge that might cause us to update more positively. By the way, inside and outside knowledge is a hot term now, although there's been a post about why it might be a not-so-informative term. I'd also highlight that regardless of what you think of the absolute tractability of charter cities, it seems intuitive that the relative tractability is lower than alternatives such as special reform zones, which aim at delivering the same benefits as charter cities without having to set up and build a brand new city. That said, I'm happy you and CCI are still working on this, and I would love for you to prove us wrong. So that was the most upvoted comment, but there are some other comments. Uh, the most recent one being from Mir Pirat with a respectable seven karmas. Mir Pirat writes, Thanks for writing this up. I find the idea of charter cities interesting, and this report updated me on at least a few aspects. Also, I'm impressed you pulled this off in about 100 hours. My main takeaway was that I have failed to properly consider how much cheaper it seems to push for governance innovations in existing regions and cities. Just a random example, my current city, Darmstadt, started a Bureau of Citizen Participation a few years ago, if I recall, with the thinking to involve them in decisions on traffic and building questions. Not huge, but it gave me the impression that cities in Germany have some freedom to just do things if the ruling politicians wants to. I could imagine that there are some institutional ideas that are really difficult to implement in existing cities because there doesn't exist a smooth path consisting of small incremental changes. Though even Robin Hansen's futarchy arguably could start with experimental prediction markets, which doesn't seem like a stretch to imagine, quoting Robin Hansen. 
If a country continues to push economically illiberal policies, despite ample available evidence that such policies constrain growth, it's unclear how much one more example of a well-governed city will do to convince the government to change. It's not as if the economic success of South Korea has convinced North Korea to liberalize. I have the impression that people are usually very slow at using evidence from other countries. It regularly frustrates me how people in Germany rarely seem to do this, like there'd be nothing to learn. Charter cities could help in this way, as I think it's more intuitive for lay people, but I think this is only a very small factor. Uh, quoting Hansen again, to examine whether this claim is true, it would be nice to have a formal model that attempts to roughly capture the value that charter cities might generate through spillovers, replication, and experimentation. Even less easy to capture, in my mind, charter cities might strengthen a cultural shift in direction of, quote, experimentation in governance makes sense. Politics should also be thought of with a scientific mindset and not like ideological battle. With rose-colored glasses on, I see a TV report that explains that politics is difficult, and that's why the EU will pour out funds for experimentation with new governance ideas. And finally, maybe a suggestion of a somewhat related success story. I'm currently reading The Weirdest People by anthropologist Joseph Hein Henrik, and he kind of paints a picture of Europe around the about 13th century as a time of competition between cities for companies and industrious people and where cities copied successful institutions from one another, in case you have the book. It's an extra movie, Magdeburg Law. And um, response to this comment by Jeffrey Mason. It's interesting to me that your takeaway is that pushing for governance intervention is cheaper in existing policies rather than newly created polities. Sorry, I meant to say polities. Uh, if your definition of cheaper factors in the cost of building new cities, then I get your point. I think there are good reasons to discount, to discount that cost that are discussed in the report. But regardless, do you think there is something unique about German institutional arrangements that allows for cities to better overcome collective action problems? Cities in the U.S. and most all developing countries seem to really struggle with overcoming the collective action problems that stand in the way of achieving anything that isn't extremely marginal. For example, it seems as though there were significant, there were significant if there were significant public support for infrastructure project X or major policy reform Y in, pick an African megacity, that it's pretty unlikely that the project can be attempted, let alone successfully completed. I think he means if there weren't. Maybe it's a function of state capacity. High capacity states, I think of Germany as having greater state capacity than the US for instance, are better equipped to overcome collective action problems than low capacity states because they can credibly commit to a course of action and then efficiently execute on that vision. Anyway, glad to hear you're interested in charter cities. And Neil Pilot responds. Or maybe it's Mayor Pirat. Exactly, I also included the money to build the city. Is there a case for not doing that? And he quotes, quoting, do you think there's something unique about German institutional arrangements that allows for cities to better overcome collective action problems 
Good question. Uh, I'm generally completely out of my depth here, unfortunately. Uh, one other possibly noteworthy example that comes to mind is that Berlin, ruled by left parties, pushed through very controversial rent control reforms a couple of years ago that now have to be rolled back because of a court ruling that the reform didn't conform with the national legislation. Or what about the voting reform work by election science? Uh, if I recall, they were at least mildly successful in convincing a few local governments in the U.S. to change their voting processes. In case anyone else can chime in, I'd be really interested in comparisons of something like governance, autonomy, diversity, and innovation across states, cities, and countries. The higher those are, the easier it should be to convince local states or city-states of innovation reforms. Jeffrey Mason responding again. CCI's recommendation for charter cities is that it would be best to develop the initial infrastructure build-out of charter cities with private capital rather than public resources, the idea being that a private developer will be more responsive to market forces and take a long-term view of the investment. So that this is one type of cost, let's call them infrastructure costs. The second set of costs are the resources dedicated to creating and implementing the governance innovation. This is drafting and negotiating legislation for a concession agreement, determining institutional arrangements, identifying governing officials, and so on. Let's call these governance costs. I think you can discount the infrastructure costs because this is private capital that would go into a variety of other prospects, presumably a large chunk of it in real estate in the absence of the Charter City project. And since we're talking about lower-income countries, those alternative investments are probably not creating much social value or are going somewhere else entirely. If the Charter City is successful, the costs are recouped by the developer through the increase in land value brought, by, brought on by economic activity. If the charter city does not take off, the capital is lost, which is bad, but seems like this consideration should be relatively unimportant from an EA point of view. And even if the charter city doesn't take off, a power plant built for the charter city, for example, could obviously continue to function for the surrounding region. Note that if there was government financing involved in this first area, then I think the calculation changes because the state is being forced to make trade-offs with more obvious implications for social costs. So. If you're willing to accept that we can discount the infrastructure cost for the reasons outlined above, you're left with the governance cost. The value proposition then becomes, for the governance cost outlined above, a successful charter city creates a sustained high-growth environment that reduces poverty and leads to broader reforms. I think that for a few million dollars, parentheses with some variance in the direction for this case, you can get most of the elements mentioned above in place. From the point of view of an EA looking to direct resources, these are the only set of costs that they are going to interact with. Charter cities are certainly high risk and high uncertainty, but the return from even just one charter city is successful charter city is quite large. And after there's a direct proof of concept rather than various linkages to similar examples from the recent past, Shenzhen, etc., the risk and uncertainty will decline. I appreciate that this calculated bet won't be attractive to a lot of EAs, but I think it's worth exploring. Recreation, a fraction of the success, just a fraction of the success of China, the Asian Thailand groups. Botswana, Vietnam, etc., in countries still seeing low or highly variable growth is a better counterfactual than the path those countries are on now, and EAs should be trying to do something about it, charter cities or otherwise. I think this fits into a larger discussion about calcification within EA, but that's a topic for another thread. Next comment by uh, Matt Lerner. Um, getting uh, decent 17 upvotes. Thanks for this. It seems like much of the work that went into your, CE, into your CEA 
could be repurposed for explanations of other potential growth or governance-enhancing interventions, since finding such an intervention would be quite high value, and since the parameters in your CEA are quite uncertain, it seems like the value of information with respect to clarifying these parameters, and therefore the final ROI distribution is probably very high. Do you have a sense of what kind of research or data would help you narrow the uncertainty in the parameter inputs of your cost-effectiveness model? And David Bernal responds. I'm not convinced that our CEA is particularly useful for more generalized interventions. All we really do is assume, uh, by the way, cost-effectiveness analysis, all we really do is assume that the intervention causes some growth increase, a distribution rather than a point estimate, and then model expected income with the intervention, with the intervention 10 years later, and with the intervention. The amount the intervention increases growth is the key parameter and is very uncertain, so further research on this will have the highest VOL, uh, return on investment, maybe ROI, uh, but this will be value of investment, but this will be different for each intervention. We treat how the intervention increases growth as a black box. So I think looking inside the box and trying to understand the mechanisms better would shed some light on how robust the assumed growth increase is and how we might expect it to generalize to other contexts. Furthermore, we only model the direct benefits of the growth intervention. In general, I'd expect the indirect effects to be larger, and our modeling approach doesn't say anything about these, so I expect looking into these indirect benefits perhaps to be an alternative model that have higher VOI, value of investment. For charter cities in particular, we could probably further tighten the balance on the direct benefits by getting more rigorous information on city population growth rates and correlation between population growth and income growth. Okay, I think I have now captured all of the substantive comments. So I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did and hopefully even more. And remember, all of the things you enjoy may be found in the struce.